0: And not Ezekiel four. I'm going to read through verse 26, one through 26. Um, I seriously doubt I'm going to be able to get through the whole text. So, um, but that's what we're going to look at so far, at least to get the context. Beginning in verse 1, John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judah and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now live with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Lord, I The way that you have um, condescended to us. I, I love that phrase that you speak to humans like a baby uh, gets talked to by his parents. <laughs> you listen to us, you, you 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 meet us where we're at, Lord. Even someone like this woman who is clearly living in such sin, but yet you being the great God that you are has seen fit to love her and to call her to yourself, Lord. It's a commentary on our own soul and it's some thinking that we should do for our own selves that we are no better than this woman or anybody else that we find you engaging in scripture Lord we all are rebel sinners in need of your great saving we are all desperate and thirsty in need of this living water that wells up in eternal life we are all pride and prideful and arrogant and in need of your rebuke and correction and instruction and so Lord we pray that as we look at this passage and consider your way with this woman here, Lord, that we would be moved to worship and we would be moved to praise you for all the glory that you have bestowed upon yourself through the saving of her and saving of us from our sins, Lord, such an undeserved treasure. So lead and guide our thinking right now, Lord, into paths that would cause us to love you more and know you better than we did when we got here. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's not forget the context. John, of course, was not written in um, a a vacuum, in a sense, taking chapters and, you know, segregating them from the rest of his book. John 4 follows on the heels of John 3, obviously. But John 3 gave us an instance where Jesus encountered Uh, Nicodemus the Pharisee and we might be tempted to think that because these two stories are separated by John the Baptist's testimony about his need to decrease and Jesus's need to increase that these are two entirely distinct and separate stories but they're not. You see John's goal in writing his gospel seems to be to present Jesus Christ as the very God of very gods which is why he has these Wonderful I am statements peppered throughout his gospel. And in doing so, what we notice him doing, or let me point out to you what he does, is he takes here these two people who couldn't be more opposite from each other, right? A Jewish religious elite of Jesus' day. One who probably had most of this much of the Bible memorized. And memorizing it means that he had not only taken it into his mind, but it seems, especially from Nicodemus' actions and attitudes, taken it into his heart. And was seriously a worshipper of God as best he could be at this particular point, although in ignorance that Jesus points out. Then you have this woman that we're going to look at here, who is, for all intents and purposes... Somewhat of a legalized prostitute. At least that's what one commentary has described her as, and I think it's perfectly appropriate to kind of think along those lines. She legally been married to five different men, but yet the one she's living with at the time where she encounters Jesus isn't her husband. So she is clearly one who is um, used to experiencing some of the form of physical comfort from many different men to say it in the most understated way that I possibly could. But she clearly is not someone who is desiring to worship the true and living God. She's a Samaritan for one. And lest we begin, what what we have the tendency to do is we have the tendency to read a story like this and empathize so much with her. We think, oh, and Jesus sounds kind of harsh in some of the ways that he says certain things and cruel. The Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans, right? And, and, and we want to read our modern tolerant sensibilities back into the pages of Scripture. And so therefore, we get a emotional uh, draw to this woman. And we go, oh, we feel so bad for her, right? The, the reason why these two people, Nicodemus and this woman, are so completely distinct from each other is the fact, truly, that she's Samaritan. Not just that she's a woman, which we all understand in Jesus' day, there was no equality, (laughs) none at all. Jesus was one of the few individuals in all of history that has truly brought an element of equality to the sexes, right? I mean, he was constantly going out of his way, like he does right here, to go and encounter women, and to give them spiritual insight, understanding, and experience that there's no way they would have gotten otherwise. So Jesus, on his own, is somebody who is doing something. Just the action that he's doing, asking for water, is absolutely radical in his day and age. But she's a Samaritan. Now, there's a handful of Samaritans, I don't know if you know this, that still exist. There's like three or 400 of them. They still live in... Palestine or Israel to this day, they still are right there, still worshiping in probably similar ways, but they are very few and far between, and they, for the most part, stay interrelated with themselves, cut off from the majority of the rest of society. They, unfortunately, will probably die out someday. But what happened in in bringing these Samaritans even to existence in the first place was in 726, B.C. Okay? So we're talking 1,700 plus years ago. No, 2,700 plus years ago. Golly, that's a lot of years ago. It's hard to even think about that there were people living and doing all their normal people moving stuff back in that day and age. But they were. In that day, the nation of Israel was divided. There was a southern kingdom which consisted of Benjamin, pardon me which consisted of Judah and Benjamin, and then there was the ten northern tribes. And these ten northern tribes, which are all the other tribes of Israel, were segregated after King Solomon, and the ten northern tribes quickly fell into idolatry and rebellion. In fact, one of the things that you will go and see if you ever go to Israel is you'll go to the place that is known in biblical days as the tribe of Dan, and you'll find that they have excavated one of the First, Jewish tribes that had set up an altar to a foreign god that they have found and discovered. And there it is in all of its ugly glory there on display, and you can see this thing has sat there. Well, what has happened is the Jews had rebelled against God in the nation of Israel. Judah remained more faithful. But because Israel, these ten northern tribes were faithless against the Lord, the Lord brought judgment against them. And the Lord brought judgment and judgment and judgment. In fact, if you want homework tonight, go home and read Deuteronomy, the end of the book from chapter 28 on, 26 on will actually serve you better. And you're going to find that there's a whole series of blessings and cursings. Blessings for the nation as they follow the Lord and follow his law and follow his ways and cursings, and what will happen if they continue to reject the ways of the Lord. And what you find in the history of Israel is Deuteronomy coming to pass in terms of the cursings rather than the blessings, because they did turn to rebellious ways, they turned to idolatry, and they turned from the true and living God to worship a multiplicity of other other gods, and some even became a more atheistic, if you will. Um, so God brought judgment, and he brought judgment in the form of the nation of Assyria. And Assyria was a vicious, violent empire. Um, there are stories of people being taken in captivity. We'll find some of them if you look in the history here in Scripture. Some of them from extra biblical history, where they would skin people alive, where they would put jaws in the hooks of people and march them for hundreds of miles, sometimes until they... Died on these hooks, and then all manner of other things. They were a vicious people.
1: One of their
0: tactics, though, when they conquered a nation and conquered a people, was to repopulate or partially repopulate the land they had conquered. So when they had conquered the nation of Israel, they took many of these people from these 10 northern tribes, mostly the affluent, mostly the landowner, mostly the well off and left the more impoverished people, the lesser people in the land. And they took these wealthier people off into captivity and they brought in people from all of the other nations that they conquered to try to get them to intermarry so there would no longer be this Jewish nation or any nation that they conquered for that matter. Their goal was to completely get rid of the nations that they had conquered, assimilating them into the Assyrian empire, and the way to do that would be to interbreed and intermarry. Well, what happened is the Jewish people who were left behind still wanted to worship the true and living God, even though they had been intermarrying with these people from the other groups that Assyria had conquered. And so they appealed to the Assyrian government ...for a Jewish priest to be brought back and to reinstitute Jewish worship. And of course the Assyrians were a little more clever than just that. So what they did is they found several of the Jewish priests... ...who had already re-assimilated into the newer culture... ...or pardon me, not re... ...had assimilated into the newer culture... ...and were able to take their Jewish knowledge and heritage... ...and this new spurious worship back to these ten northern tribes... And begin again. And one of the things that they did in beginning again is they took rid, they got rid of the history of the nation of Israel. And they only accepted the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible as sacred scripture. Because the rest of the Bible that they had written at that time had all kinds of glorious truths of God standing on behalf of Israel. And God being faithful to Israel. And God fighting on the side of Israel. And the kings and of course the Assyrians don't want any record of these kings to continue to be floating around out there right so you understand so the Assyrians sent these pseudo-Jewish priests back perverted and twisted their worship rather than establishing worship back on Mount Zion back in Jerusalem where the throne pardon me where the temple was established they instead set up a place on Mount Gerizim to be worshipped now Mount Gerizim in two places in the Pentateuch, Numbers and in Deuteronomy, is seen as the place of God's blessing. So what they were trying to do is pervert and twist the worship of God by saying, oh, here's a place of blessing we find in the Pentateuch and set up and establish a temple of worship there, which is the context of why we see what the woman says here at the end. You say we should worship there, we say we should worship here, which is it? Well, that's why. It was a very serious theological discussion that had been had for generations, for centuries at that particular point. So, if you think about it, what happened is these pseudo-priests came back in, established a perverted or twisted version of Judaism worshiping on a different place than God had ordained and practicing different sacrifices and different ways of worshiping than God had instituted all for the sake of keeping this Assyrian homogeny, right? Now when the Babylonian captivity came and some more Jews were taken away they remained pure in their worship. Babylon didn't have the same kind of assimilation understanding or assimilation method that Assyria did. So when you find Babylon, um, being the one who comes and conquers Judah, you find things like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Asherah, Azariah. These guys continuing to worship the true and living God, even in Babylon, and they're allowed to do it. And worship continues to exist in Babylon as faithfully Jewish as they possibly can be. Remember Daniel there at the end of his life? Faces Jerusalem as he prays and he gets caught and thrown in the lion's den. You guys know that story well. Um, what happened is when the Babylonian captivity was ended and people came back into the land after both the Medo-Persian and the Greek Empire had risen and had gone in 120-ish, there's, I, I couldn't get a clear exact number, but around 120 B.C., the Jews led a revolt against the Samaritans. And they led a revolt against the Samaritans and it was so decisive that they actually raised the temple there on Mount Gerizim. So you can imagine, that was 120 years-ish before Christ. So we're talking 140 years before this event probably took place. Maybe 150 years. Now 150 years ago was like the Civil War for us. So it's, it, it's, it's that recent of a memory in the mind of this particular woman, right? So for her... And for the Samaritans, this is still a very raw wound that is open and is there, that the Jews treat them so, in their mind, distastefully. But let's think about it. let us uh, We don't want to be anachronistic. I already cautioned us against that. So what I want to do is give an analogy to help us try to put ourselves in this mind frame. What I'm not doing is trying to get you to read what I'm about to say back into the text. It's purely... ...for you to kind of get an idea of what's going on here, okay? So, we're a Christian church. We have a very firmly Christian statement of faith. We are Trinitarian, right? We believe the Bible is the infallible word of God, the sole rule for our faith and our life that exists... We run everything that we do through the filter of God's word and through our understanding of the Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead, okay? Now, we might in many ways be inclined to work with other religious groups, but there would be a time that we would come into conflict with these other religious groups and we just frankly couldn't be co-belligerents anymore. We couldn't work together, right? They think about Jehovah's Witnesses. They come in and they'll knock on your door. And they'll tell you all manner of things. I love it when they come to my house. They kind of pass by now. But sometimes they still stop. But I love it. Because I love to talk to them because they're not used to speaking with somebody who is of the same theological persuasion that I am. And so the Reformed faith is something that they're, they, they wrestle with. They, they don't know how to have an answer for it. And it's a good thing. And it gets them thinking. But there's no way that we would be complementary in terms of anything we did, in terms of any type of worship at all. They are anti-Trinitarian. They don't believe the Bible in this sense. Right here is the established firm word of God. I've got a New World Translation I just got the other day at home. Looked up three passages. I was with Fred when I got it. And they all have different wordings in different sections that either minimize the deity of Christ or reject the way of salvation that we believe that scripture clearly teaches. So we would not in any way, any shape, any form say they're Christians, we stand side by side with them. At all, period, end of story. In that way, Christians have no dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Follow me? Do I hate them? No. Do I want to go, you know... To vandalize their homes and say you rotten pagans on it with some spray paint no but they are in no way shape or form on the same page with me in terms of worship and we utterly reject their worship as being legitimate based upon god's revealed word not on my own like oh i just feel like i want to reject them right now That's an illustration. Again, please be careful by reading those sensibilities back into the text. But what I want to do is help you understand how people can be supposedly similar, but yet so different from each other in terms of their outright hatred in some instances. So this is what Jesus is walking into. An interesting fact, look at verse 4. The beginning part of this, we already talked about how he was... Not baptizing but the disciples were baptizing. We talked about that before. but he left for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. There's like five different routes to get to Galilee. Only one of them went through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Who can possibly compel God? he have to go through Samaria. It's not like there was a quarantine and all the other roads were blocked off and the Samaritans were just like, hey, we're opening our country, and Jesus is like, okay, i got to go through Samaria, right? There's a very modern illustration there. But it's nothing like that. I would compel you, and I believe I am persuaded by the fact he had to go through Samaria because he's God. Because predestined before the world began, before time even was put into place, before the heavens were flung into existence, before the very first time God spoke, let there be, God the Father determined this woman would find salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Oh, that sends chills up my spine. Because if he did that for this woman, and he did that for Nicodemus, And these two people are completely opposed to each other. Nicodemus, the Jew of Jews, right? The Pharisee of Pharisees the one who is trying to follow the law to the exquisite degree, making it beautiful on display as he lives his life according to the law. And here's a Samaritan woman, a woman who he would, Nicodemus, have rejected in every way, shape, and form, and had been following a perverse tradition and religion, and her own lineage was perverse and twisted because she was interbreeded with other people who weren't Jewish. In every way, these two people couldn't be more different than each other. And yet Jesus had to go to her just as much as he had to talk to Nicodemus. There is hope for you. There is hope for me. This tells me that I absolutely can with confidence and authority preach the gospel anywhere I go and there is no person, no matter what I think about them, no matter what my preconception might be of them, that is outside of the bounds of the grace of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't matter what sins they've committed, it doesn't matter what life they've lived, it doesn't matter how righteous they think they are, it doesn't matter how sinful they think they are, or they might actually be. God's grace does not have bounds based upon any of those distinctions that we would so love to put up as human beings. I mean, my own life. I way more identify with this gal than I do with Nicodemus in terms of who I was before I was a Christian. And There was a moment in time where he had to pass through camp I was at where I got saved he had to pass through there because that point in time was again predestined before the foundation of the world where everything up to that point brought me to the place where I was completely and totally laid open, naked and bare before the very word of God like the book of Hebrews tells us brightly cut down the middle Divided in soul and spirit. Confronted with my sin and my unrighteousness. And God had to meet me there in that moment. And his spirit came upon me and caused me to be born again. Just like he said would happen in the case of Nicodemus. So I love this. I, I love what John does here. Because what John wants to do is put this book in the hands of anybody out there who would get their hands on it. And as they read through it, realize, I can be saved too, if I would believe and repent of my sins. God so loved the world, a Samaritan woman who was living in perpetual sin, and a Jewish religious Pharisee who was the elite of the lead of his day, God so loved the world that he sent his son that either one of those people and anybody in between that spectrum would believe in him would have everlasting life. He had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was wearied from his journey, and he sat beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, it 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 doesn't exist as a town today, but you can go there to Israel and you can go to some ruins from the town that's there at the base of Mount Gerizim. And it's interesting to see. I have some pictures somewhere from when I was there. Um, But even before this time, Jacob, the great patriarch of the faith, had dug a well and had bought this particular plot of land and given it to his son Joseph. He had watered his own livestock there, and he had lived and dwelt there for a long period of time. It was a place that is revered in Jewish history and clearly revered in Samaritan history as well, because this would have also been included in the Pentateuch, the books that they believed were sacred scripture. But I want to point out two things before we get into the conversation. The first thing that I want to point out is that Jesus was wearied from his journey. No, I am never going to be able to communicate to you the understanding of the hypostatic union. Know what that means? That's the big fancy phrase for Jesus is God, Jesus is man, they both won. How does that happen? Well, all throughout church history, people have debated the fact, well, he's not totally human. He's not completely God. There's a 50-50. Well, there's not. Well, he, he was this, he was that. No, he was just a ghost. He just appeared human. Oh, he was wholly human and this Christ consciousness came upon him at his baptism or all of these manner of things that people have over the years tried to do to kind of obfuscate or get away from the fact that Jesus declares himself to be one completely 100% to be God Almighty, creator, sustainer, ordainer of everything that exists and totally, completely a human who is wearied, who cries, who eats, who sweats, probably all the rest of the things that come with humanity. Completely man and completely God. There's no division between them. This is a glorious truth. If he is not completely and totally human, we do not have a Savior who can save us from all of our sins. If he isn't completely and totally God, we don't have a Savior who can save all of us from all of our sins. His humanity means that as he lived a perfect human life under the law, he can substitute his life for a human's life. Him being God means that he can do it infinitely. He can do it for all of the people who were ever ordained to believe throughout all of the ages of history. But without both his deity and his humanity, we don't have both of those truths. But the glorious thing, we do have both of those truths. And so little... Little, little, little details like this matter so much that he was wearied from his journey. It isn't just so I have a point of identification with Jesus. Well, I got tired when I hiked once too. No. It's to show us the fact that Jesus was the absolute, perfectly capable Savior of humanity. The second thing I want to point out is he was sitting beside the well at the sixth hour, Now, there's a lot of disagreement I've noticed about what this sixth hour means. Is it 6 a.m.? Is it noon? Is it 6 in the evening? Um, Different, you know, cultures rendered it differently. In fact, it even seems like different periods of Jewish history rendered Jewish time differently. The Romans rendered it differently. The Greeks rendered it kind of differently. So what is he actually uh, saying here? I don't know. And I'm not gonna even try to give you some kind of wonderful guess that here's why I think it's this. I will tell you my own personal conviction and I don't care if you disagree, that's totally fine. It's good, it's great. I don't think this is six in the morning because number one, Jesus was wearied from his journey. He'd been walking a while. Number two, that's when most people would come out of the town to draw their water. But Jesus is alone with this woman. So it's probably not that early in the morning. I don't think this is six at night, although that would have meant Jesus was wearied from his entire day journey, but that's also when other people would come out to draw water because cool of the morning, cool of the morning, cool of the day, right? I think this is probably right in the middle of the day, in noon. So some accounts of rendering time in biblical time, that's going to account for, and some it won't. I have no hill to die on. But... I want to point out, and the reason why I make a point of this is because what I want you to see is there are, as we study God's word, certain things that would have been absolutely culturally understood back in their day and age and that we don't completely get and it doesn't take away from the truth of the text. Some people have a real problem with that. They have to know every single thing has to be accounted for or else, oh, no, it suddenly isn't God's word. Be careful of that. That's the road of the King James only fundamentalist. Okay, that's the road of the person who becomes so insulated and it's us four no more because we have all of the understanding of every single jot and tittle of the text. Okay? It's okay to have some differences as we're Christians and we're trying to understand the truth of God's word. Anyways, that's a bonus side point. Let's get into what the conversation is. And there's no way we're going to finish this whole whole conversation. So I'll get as far as I can. A woman from Samaria came out to draw water and said to her, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The assumption is the disciples would have been the ones who had got him the water. Jesus is no respecter of persons though. Right? He, he, he's perfectly okay asking this woman for a drink, even though culturally it was clearly a no-no, right? We've already seen that. It was clearly taboo, and she understands that. But Jesus is no respecter of persons. This, for me, is, it can be convicting. can be, and I think if anybody's honest, it can be convicting. I remember, do you remember Gene Autry? that old cowboy guy from like the 30s or 40s or something. He was one of the first like cowboy movie stars. And there's a Gene Autry museum down in LA and I remember my grandma taking me there when I was a little kid. And so Gene Autry was this figure that I kind of remember as a kid growing up. He was kind of a a predecessor to the Lone Ranger. That kind of, you know, not a vigilante, but he'd go out there and get the bad guy, kind of cowboy kind of thing. And he had a statement that he said he never met a person that he didn't like. It's man. He said he never met a man he didn't like. I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't relate to that. I want to, believe me, believe me, believe me. I want to live like that. I really, really, really do. But if I'm perfectly honest, golly, there's people I don't like. <laughs> and there's people you don't like. I'm I'm sure that there's no Gene Autrys here right now. He was a rare, rare bird. Maybe that's what got him the stardom that he got. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, and you know what? It's awful. I hate it. It sucks that I am am like that. Because it means I'm a respecter of persons. It means there are people who I'm going to treat differently than I'm going to treat other people. And doggone, I wish I wasn't like that. This is one of the things that was... And as I'm reading this text, particularly convicting for me this week. Lord, I want to. He takes this woman who otherwise would have been not spoken to at all. And he uses this opportunity to bring her the most glorious truth she could ever have. And here I am bothered about something somebody said to me like five years ago. You know, the way this one person looked at me or, you know, whatever stupid thing it is that I suddenly become a respecter of persons about. I'm so less than Jesus. But it's what makes Jesus so good and so glorious is that he is so much bigger than me. It's good when I see my faults in light of Jesus. Because it helps me see him as most glorious and me worship him as I confess my sin, and then I look to him to give me the strength to uh, get over these things. He's no respecter of persons. Well, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Well, the Samaritan says, how is this that you are asking me for a drink now, it, it might be my own personality, but I read snark into nearly everything this woman says. I hear her saying, are you Jew asking me for water? How about get it yourself. You know, that, that's, this is the way I hear her voice, although she probably sounds better than my voice. But this is the way, so as we go through this, this is what I'm, how I'm hearing her speak. And so I think phrases that she uses here are they, 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 they gain in snarkiness <laughs> all the way up until the very end. And the reason why I see her gaining in snarkiness is I believe she's being more and more convicted. She's being more and more confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. Right now, all he is is a Jewish man. By the end, he's the Messiah of this conversation that takes like 10 minutes to have. Well, it probably took longer than that. We, we've got John's version here for us. But just a Jew. Why are you just a Jew asking me for water? We don't have anything to do with each other. I imagine her saying, I don't want anything to do with you. Think I'm going to give you water? You know what you've done to our people all these years? Right? It's the kind of vibe that you should get, I believe, from this. So Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. Now, I'm pretty confident that there was not a whole lot of categories for this particular woman to be hearing these words from Jesus. However, If you notice one of the things about Jesus' conversation, he very rarely takes the conversation anywhere any one of us would ever take it, right? He says things that are just like, it's like he's grasping something from over here and he's grasping something from over here. And you're like, what in the world, right? Jesus, you're a rabbi. We know you've been sent from God because no one can do the things that you do unless they've been sent from God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's been born again. (laughs) It seems like such a non sequitur, but you see, Jesus, he's not interested in pleasantries. He's not interested in her snark. This is one of the truths that we can hold on to very well, is that when we're having conversations, and I believe this happens in the context of both discipleship and evangelism, we don't always have to have every single word rightly ordered, our, our arguments all you know, pinned together in a nice little line. That the Holy Spirit often uses things that we don't see as being the most powerful point that we have in our arsenal of evangelistic or discipleship language. Sometimes it's a little offhanded comment that all of a sudden gets somebody. And Jesus is great at this because He knows what she's thinking and he knows exactly what she needs to hear. So from our perspective, it looks like a non sequitur, but it's not. Jesus is getting right to the heart of the matter right away. And that's what the Holy Spirit does as we trust him to speak to the people who we're speaking to as well. So if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living Water. Now, at this point, living water isn't defined by Jesus. She is not going to have a complete comprehensive understanding of what Jesus is getting at because she does not have the prophets in her canon of scripture. And I'm going to show you just a minute that this concept of living water comes from the book of Isaiah. And so it's a very Jewish understanding, which is why he says later on, salvation is of the Jews. You worship what you don't understand, but we worship what we do understand. It's because their canon was insufficient and inadequate to be able to teach all of these truths. So living water isn't just defined by Jesus, but I think it's just enough to perk her attention up because she says to him, sir, you don't have anything to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water, right? Are you greater than Jacob? You can hear her saying that, Right. He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Oh, you're a big man coming here asking me for water, huh? Living water, huh? That sounds amazing. Well, let me show you a few places where we look back and we are helped by a proper understanding of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 12. If you ever, as you're turning to Isaiah 12, if you ever get something from me, like a card or congratulations on whatever, graduation, birthday or something, I will typically write a little thing. I'll sign my name or the Mathers, if it's from all of us as a family, and I'll write Isaiah 12. It's not because it's my favorite passage in all of Scripture. It's not even because it says the most wonderful truths of all the scripture. It says wonderful truths, absolutely. But it's a place that is not used to being pointed to. And I hope that by writing that there, people are encouraged to go back and read places that they don't commonly go and they read and find wonderful things therein. It's hopefully a way to help people dig into the word of God more. That's why I quote Isaiah 12. Let me read you the whole text here. It's only six verses. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy There you see in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, With joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Now, I am not saying this is a one-to-one parallel that Isaiah was prophesying of Jesus' being there at the well of Jacob and him talking about drawing water up out of the well and then comparing it to the wells that well up within you. But what I am saying is that this is one of the places where we find this phrase of spiritual living water coming about. So when Jesus uses the phrase living water again in John chapter 7, there in Jerusalem, there's a greater understanding because they have these texts to fall back on. Texts like Isaiah uh, 43, pardon me, 35, Isaiah 35. Oh, I'd like to read this whole thing. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The joy of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. They will strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool in the thirsty ground, springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, and the grass. Shall become reeds and rushes. And on we can go from there. Or Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 says, But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshuan, whom I have chosen for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. And they will spring up like grass among the, or like willows flowering by the streams. And then on he goes from there and says, I am the Lord's, another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and the name of himself, is the name on all Israel. Or Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. Say to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear, and they shall feed along the ways, and on the bare paths shall be their pasture. They will not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun will strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water they will guide them, and I will make all my mountains a road, and the highways shall be raised up, and behold, all these shall come from afar, and behold, from the north, from the west, and from the land of Cyrene, and on he goes from there, and on we can go from there, I have several more that we could look at. But you hear the point, and he even makes the point in Isaiah 44, that the waters Raising up into the spring of eternal life is likened to the Holy Spirit's work within a person. The Holy Spirit's greatest work is not miracles and healing. The Holy Spirit's greatest work is regeneration. Saving dead sinners from their sins. Taking those who were dead in their trespasses, who were by nature children of wrath causing them to become born again, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then baptizing them into the body of Christ. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is baptizing into the body of Christ. Not a second blessing, not some uber-super-spiritual Christian. It is you becoming a Christian and you being brought into the family of God. We could use the phrase adoption. It's a wonderful word there. So when he says you're going to get these living waters that well up within you, he's talking about this regeneration that comes from the Holy Spirit that Isaiah prophesied about back in chapter 44. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Now, we'll stop there. It's such a superficial understanding that she has of what Jesus is saying. Now, I don't know if it's just pure ignorance on her part or if it's deliberate snarkiness. I kind of think it is that she's like, well, I don't want to come back down here and draw water. But I think the reason for that is because she is genuinely feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit at that point. And we'll see this as we go on through the rest of this particular section. But to close, the important thing for us that as we walk away from here is to be reminded of the fact that here the Lord takes this woman and he brings her gently, lovingly. As, <laughs> as much as she's pushing back against him, he still is such a caring and compassionate savior and bringing her to the place where she will eventually see her need, respond to Christ as her Lord and Savior, and then go make disciples of her nation. <laughs> I don't know if she did any baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't have that information. But we do know that the Lord is mighty to save. And you know it if you have believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ because you have that welling up of living water within you. And you no longer thirst like you do physically every single day, but you no longer thirst for that spiritual satisfaction because you now have eternal life. And that's within you, and it will never be taken away from you. Christ completes that to which he begins. And so, beloved, if you've been born again by him, you can be absolutely assured that you are his and he is yours. Father... Thank you for the love that you've given to us in sending your son to die for us, to live for us and die for us, that you might give to those of us whom you have ordained that eternal life that is the glorious gift that comes through your doing. So Lord, we ask and pray that as we come to your table that we are excited with the joy of worshiping you and experiencing this covenantal blessing that you've given to us in your suffering. Thank you Lord Jesus in your name.